0: Well, good morning. Glad you're here today. So this morning, if you will take out your sermon notes, it should be in the uh, uh, rack right in front of you. And if you'd like to follow along with that, I encourage you to do that. And then turn into your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Again, there's probably a Bible in front of you. You can turn to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, the second book in the New Testament, and go to chapter 12. It is our love for God that enables us to love people. You can't turn that around. You can't bypass that. It is through our love for God that springs out or overflows in our love for people. Can I say that I love what SCC has become? I love that. I've watched that change, that God has done a work in us, and I know that there was love before we came, and there's always been love here. I know that, but God has done a powerful work of love in us, and we're not perfect. We got a long ways to grow, but I often hear comments like, you know, there's something special with the Psalmist Community Church. There's something special, and And we feel accepted. I I love what Kim's uh, son said about uh, Charles said. He said that he couldn't wait to come to church on Sunday. Now, this is a young man. I love that. And I know that she loves that and appreciate that as a mother. If you sense something is missing in your life, perhaps it, it is this. God has created us with a hunger to love God. And there's no other way to curb that hunger but by loving God. We may try to satisfy that hunger in different many avenues, but there's no way we can fill that hole in our heart except by loving God. So the question begs, how do we come to love God? What is the causes that causes us to have a growing love for God. So we're going to look in Mark chapter 12, one of the most important verses in the New Testament that Jesus speaks. And we find in verse 28 of Mark chapter 12, verse 28, it says, Then one of the scribes came, having heard them reasoning together And if we were just to stop and take a moment, you remember there's been an ongoing conversation with the Pharisees and and, uh, some great uh, conversations and some great truth came out of that. And so he has been listening through all of that. And then he says, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, asked Jesus, which is the first commandment of all? Which is the first commandment of all? Now, let's just take a little history course on who the scribes are. The word scribe means writer. So if you have a pen or a pencil in your hand, you are a scribe <laughs> as you write your notes. This is what a scribe meant. R- originally, they were the Epsons and Hewlett Packers of the day. <laughs> they copied the Bible, and they did that all by hand. Now, here, here's how they came the scribes came about. In 586 BC, Jerusalem was captured by the Babylonians and the temple was looted and destroyed by fire and the Jews were exiled to Babylon. And about 70 years later, the Jewish captives returned to Jerusalem from Babylon and according to the Bible in Ezra, right before Nehemiah, Ezra who builds the temple, rebuilds the temple and in that process, he discovers a copy of the Torah, which means the first five books of the Bible, when you're reading the Bible and it talks about the law, is reference to those five first books of the Bible. That is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so they found it, and they were excited about this. It's like losing your Bible, and not having your Bible. You left it at the church, and you didn't miss it till Saturday. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> But they found the, the Torah, and they got so excited, and they stood, and they read five books of the Bible. It was five books. And they said, we gotta copy this, and so developed this group called the, the Jewish Scribes. And so they started to copy the Torah so other people could have it, so they wouldn't just have just one copy. And they took this very serious. In fact, let me give you some examples of of the scribe. It also gives us confidence that we do have, when we hold the Word of God, we do have the Word of God because God has, in His divine providence, has preserved His Word for us because He wants wants us to know who He is. And so it's important for us to understand that. And so the, the scribes, they would take each column and it could have no less than 48 and no more than 60 lines. I mean, they had this down to science. They had came to these rules. The ink must be black and a special recipe. Just couldn't use any ink. They must, ver- they must verbalize each word aloud while they were writing. They must wipe the pen and wash their entire bodies before writing the word Jehovah every time they wrote it. They would, later on, when, when more of the scriptures came in the Old Testament and, and they started co- copying the, com- the, the complete um, uh, Old Testament, they would find out, what letter was in the very middle of the Old Testament? And then they knew a number. They started from the beginning and they would count. And they knew when, when you reached this certain letter, not a word, but the letter, they knew it was that many, that, that was a number. And then they would go from the end and they would work back and they would count. And if, if they had written the Old Testament and that letter was off, they would trash that. Months of work. They would trash that because it was off. They knew something was not right. And so the meticulous made those copies. So this is the scribe. Now, the scribes eventually became learned men, the law of the Bible. They not only wrote the Bible, made the copies of the Bible, they didn't write the Bible. God wrote uh, through the inspiration. uh, Men wrote it through the inspiration of God the prophets, but the scribes became learned men as they copied the Bible, and eventually they became interpreters of the scriptures, and, and then they would, in fact, when you look at the New Testament and you see the word lawyer, it's interchangeable to the scribes because they had came to a place where they knew those five books very well. And when there was difficult questions and subtle things to, to be answered, they would go to the scribe and say, what do you say, what does this mean? And they would interpret it. So this is the scribe that's coming to Jesus. And this scribe here asked Jesus, which is the first commandment of all? What is the most important one? What is, what is right there at number one? Now understand, as, as he's saying this, that the scribes, had a debate going in the, and among themselves, and the scribe was part of the Pharisees. Is is that they had a debate, and it, the debate was uh, noted that that uh, that they would choose and they would decide which is the most important uh, commandment. At That time there was 613 commandments. 365 negatives, 248 positives. So they had counted up the commands and divided them into duns, negatives and positives and do's. And then they would talk about which was the more or less important ones. And so when they came to Jesus, and I believe he came with a sincere heart. I don't think that this part that he was trying to trap Jesus, uh, perhaps he was, but he comes to Jesus, and he asks him question. Of the 613 commandments that we have derived, which one is the most important one? And this question could have ignited a debate, could have a heated argument. But here's what Jesus responded. So I want you to read this with me in verse 29. Here's Jesus' response to this scribe. Jesus answered, the first of all commandments to hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, Jesus takes the first, he calls this the first and second commandment, and one is found in Leviticus, one is found in Deuteronomy, and he puts them together for the first time. Jesus does this if you have your Bible and you want to go with me to the book of Deuteronomy, I would like for us to read in Deuteronomy the first and greatest commandment that Jesus uh, has just read. He quotes out of the Old Testament to the scribe, and he says the first one is this, and it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, and he says again, Hear, O Israel, in Deuteronomy 6, 4. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligent to your children and in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes, and you shall write, write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. You ever watch Fiddler in a Roof? This is brought out in that movie. Written on the doorposts, and, and, and you see him uh, those things that they had written. This is it. Now, this this verse here that Jesus is quoting was very familiar to the scribe and to the Jews, the Pharisees. In fact, it is still today very familiar to Orthodox Jews. It's called the Shema. It's the Shema. It's those verses I just read. Now, hang with me. I'm not here to give you a Jewish lesson, but there is something very important as we connect this with the scribe. Jesus is quoting here. Now, what he is quoting is the Shema. Now, in Orthodox Jews, and even still today, they would read the Shema, verses 4 to 9, in the morning and in the evening, twice a day. They had this memorized. And Jesus quotes this. This is the first commandment. Not only the Shema is there, but it was, um, it was probably the, the very first prayer that an Orthodox Jew would learn. And so, as a child, they would teach it when they started to pray, you know, and and how we teach our children to pray. And if we were an Orthodox Jew, we would teach them Shema and and tell them and train them to to read that and say that every morning and and at night and and then put it on the doorpost and have it uh, in our house, the Shema. It's interesting as we look at this in verse 4, Again, at the beginning of the Shema is the word "here," and the word "here" is a Hebrew word that means "Shema." <laughs> Wonder where they got that. <laughs> Interesting. The Shema is in the Hebrew language carries the thought to pay attention or focus. In the Hebrew language, there is no separate word for obey. In the Old Testament, there's no separate word for obey. Shema means to follow what was heard in obedience. If you're reading the Old Testament in Hebrew and you wanted to say, listen, obey, you would say one word, shema, listening and obey. It starts off, here: shema, O Israel, listen and obey, not just listen. Now, ladies, here, you can do this. You know where I'm going with this. Ladies, when, when you're at home and your husband is, is there and he is not listening, here's what you do. You just give them some Hebrew. Shema. You didn't take the trash out. Or your kids, they're there. They, they didn't eat their green peas. Shema. Listen, obey what I'm saying. Shema. This is what Jesus is saying. When Jesus said here in the New Testament, he demanded their respect for what he would say to follow with in obedience and what was heard. Back to Mark chapter 12. And Jesus gives them the Shema to the scribe. Very familiar. They could repeat it over and over again. Uh, Back to Jesus. It's not something new that he gave them. And so let's just stop in the text and ask, how can we love God? I want to give you four things in there in your notes if you'd like to follow along. How can we love a God we can't see, we don't audibly hear, and we don't understand many of his ways and actions? How can we? Let me give you four things. First of all, we love God when we shema. Listen, obey. We we love God when we shema. 1 John tells us in in, uh, 1 John chapter 2, it says in verse 3, and and we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandment, that person is a liar, is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show completely they love him. That is how we know we're living him. Out of obedience to what God is telling us gives us, An indicating or evidence that we love God. When we hear and obey, Shema. John chapter 14, Jesus said in verse 15, Jesus said this, he said very clearly, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So Shema, when we love love God by Shema, when we hear things that God asks us to do, it is by uh, our actions that show us and tells us that we love God. We love God by Shema, and I believe this just delights God. I just believe that when he comes down and gives us and and he speaks to us and the Holy Spirit brings us, when a person gets saved, comes to know Jesus Christ, and then he says, I want you to get baptized. And that person says, okay, God, that's what you want me to do. I really don't understand all this thing about being baptized, but I know this is what you want and you require. And it seems like a good thing to do. It's a picture of my salvation and and what Christ has done for me. And so uh, I'm going to be baptized. I think that God just comes down as he did with Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased because of the obedience of listening. Happens every time when God tells us to do something We shema, This brings delight to God. Shows our love for God. Number two, to love God is to love one God, the God of Israel. There's not a God story where we can shop for what kind of God we want. There is only one God, and He is the God of Israel. If there was a God story, you'd go in there, oh, there's only one product here. Absolutely, it's the God of Israel. Jesus qualifies which God to love the Lord, our God of Israel. God is not a list with many. He has no competitors. He should ask to be loved and supremely because he is supreme. There is no one like him. I find that sometimes people say, well, you know, there's there's this way to God and there's this, you know, they seem sincere about their God. Listen, there is only one God of the Bible and there is only one God. There is no uh, other God's. If there are other gods, they're created by man. He gave this. Jesus gives this command, and he reminds them that he is Yahweh, the great I am, the covenant keeper, the one who called Moses to deliver them out of Egypt, the gracious and loving God who delivered them through the Red Sea. He is the only God. He is exclusive. There is only one God, but he asks all to come to him in faith. He is exclusive and inclusive. He alone is God, and there is no other. He invites all to come to him, to know him. His gospel is the same, Exclusive. Jesus is the only way to God, inclusive. All who will believe may come. Jesus says there's only one God. And Jesus, as the scripture says of himself, he is the door, the truth, the life that comes to the Father. So God stands alone. He is in a class by himself. And when we make God the only God, the one God, and the only one that we're going to follow, we make and love him. We don't make God, but we love God by loving the one and only God, Jehovah. Number three, we love God through God's power. That provides the means to love God. 1 John four nineteen says we love God because he first loved us. He loved us. And because that he loved us, it creates a hunger and a thirst and, 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 a, and, a, and a conviction that I want to love God as well. But it's God who takes the first initiative. It's God who does that. And think about this, it, what it takes to love God. There are three different kinds of love in the New Testament. There is the eros. eros which is the sexual passionate love. There's the filial friendship, brother love, and there's the agape or agapeo, love, love that only comes from God. Love, how God loves. And Jesus' response to the question, he uses this Greek word agape, or agapeo, which means unconditional love, Prefer- preferential love that is chosen and acted out by the will. This is love, listen, it's not based upon the favorite conditions that we like. Sometimes we, we say, well, God, God, you know, I, I, I have a hard time loving you because this isn't happening in my life. This kind of love that we're talking about, God says to love him, goes beyond whatever conditions that we have, whether we like them or we don't like them, we say we're gonna love God. It is not love based upon the goodness of the beloved it's not based on whether you think God deserves my love or not. He says to love him, whether you think he deserves it or not. This is a love uh, that is more than a natural affinity. It's not based on our natural attraction or what we like or emotion. This love is not an emotional love. It's much deeper than that. This love is not motivated by our feelings. Rather, it is a benevolent love that always seeks the good of the beloved. This is what he says. And this type of love is exclusive to the Christian community because it flows directly from God's love. Beloved, let us one another love one another for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God for God is agapeo, for God is love. And so so we find that this love comes from God. It's by his power, by his power that we come to know God and to love God. When you're looking at the fruit of the Holy Spirit, when a believer comes to know Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within him. And the first fruit of that spirit is love. It's that agapeo love. It's reserved for the children of God, because of our, our relationship with God. Number four, we love God with everything. We're gonna love God, we love God with everything. This is what he's saying out of the scripture. You notice it says, he says here, it says, with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. There are four times he says, all, all. It's all inclusive, with, with all of our heart, it's our core. And notice it starts from within, then it works with, to without. And it starts with a heart, that you know in your heart that you love God. And this is a will. This is a determination, This is something that you have decided down deep. This is, I am going to love God. And then it goes on to our soul, our personality, our attitudes, uh, those t- type of things, our feelings, our emotions are involved in that. And then it goes to our mind and our thinking. And then with all our strength, with all that we possess, who we are, our body, our resources, and who we are, our children, our family, uh, our houses, they all belong to God. Our job, our education, that all belongs to God, our gifts and our talents. God, we give it all to you. It starts with our heart, and we give that as we give a heart, it works out to all that we have and possess. I ask myself this question in the study and what hinders my love for God? I think for me, it, uh, life seems to be overwhelming. At times, I get swept up in the busyness of life. And I find that I I get caught up in the the day or or the week and and it seems to me that that I I know and and I'll put things aside that I know I should be doing or or my time that I should be spending with God. It's more than just doing, it's being with God. And and I get swept up with it and I I set my uh, God aside uh, to, to later, to the corner, to the sides of my life. I kind of like make him an app. An app is there, you know, you can use it, and you punch it in, and, and, and then I'm going to bring it up, but then I'm going to close it out. I'm going to go to something else. I find that I do that in my life. I can have divided love where I'm pursuing something else and giving my attention uh, to something else. I also think that sometimes in my life that I just simply don't trust God I said, I don't know if God can be trusted. You know, he's asking me that, and he's doing this, and I just don't understand. It doesn't equate. It just doesn't add up. And so, therefore, it can hinder my love for God. What do you think hindered the scribe for him to love God? Well, we find his answer. We find something interesting about the scribe. Remember who he was. He comes to Jesus, and Jesus responds to the the Shema. And, he, and the, so the scribe answers Jesus after he gives him the Shema. He says in verse 32, he says, So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he. And they would agree with that. We would agree with that. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all the soul, with all strength, and to love one's neighbor as a is more than all all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That is a powerful statement. He is saying to love God with your heart, love is more, is greater of value than if you were to, to have a thousand sacrifices. Kind of like King Saul. You remember the Amalek? He came to him and God told him, you know, when you, I want you to kill all the Amalekites and don't spare anything. And he did spare some. And then when the prophet came to him and confronted him, and he said, well, you know, hey, i got all these things, and we were going to make this great sacrifice. And then God said to him, you know, I'd rather you have the Shema than doing all these things for me, this performance. And the scribe was getting this. He said, of all the burnt offerings and sacrifice that they could be making, of all the things that they could be doing in the temple and so forth... To love God with all your heart, soul, strength, understanding was more important than that. And when Jesus said, verse 3, 4, saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. He said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Who was the Jewish scribe? He was a teacher of the law. He was an interpreter of the law, the Torah. And perhaps himself, he had had times where he even was one of the copiers of the law or the Old Testament. He was involved in that or overseeing that as a scribe. He prayed the Shema since a kid. Twice a day, he prayed what Jesus just gave him. Twice a day. The entire life to that point, praying the Shemal. And God said to him, you're near the kingdom of God. But you're not in the kingdom of God. He wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a child of God. Jesus tells this man, You're not far from the kingdom of God. This man, not far because he had recognized something important that it's not about a ritual, it's not about performance, it's not about just coming to church, it's it's not about just, you know, citing some scripture. It's not about having a ritual prayer that we may say. It's not not about mere external conformity. He realized the kingdom of God is a matter of the heart. And being close is not in. This man was missing something. And perhaps when Jesus was speaking to them, and he said these words, you're not far from the kingdom of God, and he looked at him in the eyes, and then perhaps he might even step closer to the man and said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're near it. You're close to it. What was missing in that person's life It's Jesus. You're not far from it. Realize that at the very place that they were probably standing there in the temple, that a few feet away separated a curtain from the holy of holies, from the mercy seat, from the presence of God, this is a kind of glory. And in a few days from this moment then when, when Jesus was giving the scribe, the curtain was going to be rent in two from the top, from God to the bottom to mankind and have access into the mercy seat, God. Jesus, from a few feet literally outside the temple, would be hung on the cross, and he would be buried in a tomb, and he would rise again that following Sunday as the resurrected Savior. The scribe was standing near the door for the kingdom of God. He was near. He was close, but he wasn't in. He was a good man. He was a religious man. He had some good things going for him, but he didn't have Jesus. I would like to think that a few days later, After the resurrection, I'd like to think that this scribe is in heaven. I'd like to think that he is there. He got it. He saw that it was Jesus. You know what terrifies me? And it breaks my heart. Some of my friends are in the same position as the scribe. They are near the kingdom of God, but not in the kingdom of God. Why don't you bow your heads in prayer? Every head bow, or every eye close. I want to ask you right now, the moment of prayer, a self-reflecting upon when Jesus said to the scribe, Do you love God? First with your heart. Is there something missing there? Is there something you're going through, the performance, you're coming to church? You might even pick up the Bible and read the Bible and could even memorize things. And those are all very good. You might even have a prayer. And hey, you pray, and those are all good. Nothing wrong with that. But the kingdom of God has one door. And that door is very near to you. That's Jesus. Jesus tells us in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. And this is the heart of God. He said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door, I will have fellowship with him. He invites us in. He knocks on our door. And perhaps even right now, there's a a conviction that you know there's something missing and you've come to believe that it is Jesus. And that right now, in the stillness of this moment, he's knocking on your heart and say, I want to come in. He's not asking you to join a church. He's not asking you to memorize scripture. He's not asking you. He's asking you just let him in. And He's done all the work upon the cross. He invites us in to have fellowship, have a relationship with him. I want to pray. Father, I come before you and I pray for the one who perhaps here today, they're close, they're very near. They've learned some things. They know some things about you, God. They've even perhaps studied you, but they haven't come in the kingdom of God through Jesus. Father, I pray today, today, we'll open up our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen.